Battle for the Planet of the Apes. The year is 2670 A.D. The place, North America. In a ceremonial setting, an ancient lawgiver begins to read. In the beginning, man and beast dwelt in peace. In time, evil men waged war both against their own kind and the apes, whom they placed in slavery. Then a leader appeared to deliver his fellow apes to freedom. Man, in the vilest of all wars, destroyed his own cities and his civilization. The leader lived through the Holocaust, along with a precious handful of survivors. He brought them out of the molten city to greener pastures, where ape and human could learn to live in harmony. His name was Caesar, and this is his story. You are listening to Doing It with Mike Sachs. You will listen. Let us do it. I don't know, but wherever we go, there's no rule that says I can't be your father. I love you, Fonz. Love you, too. Let's go. Well, what, what happens here now? This is it. <laughs> this is it. Welcome to the 13th episode of Doing It with Mike Sachs. What a great show, this episode. I promise you, there will be an interview with Vince Gilligan. The one, the only, Vince Gilligan, Virginian Supreme. Vince is the creator of two of my all-time favorite TV shows, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. He is brilliant, and he's also incredibly decent and nice. Also, he is from Virginia, my home state, making all of us Virginians incredibly proud. I think all we had before Vince was Thomas Jefferson, although I'm not too strong on history. That is coming up soon. But first, I want to answer one letter. And this comes to us from a Jessica Vance in Los Angeles, California. And for some bizarre reason, it's written with a pencil on a coconut. The coconut appears to be rotten. Not sure how Jessica sent this through the U.S. Postal Service or why. It stinks to high heaven. And I'm beginning to think it's not even a coconut. Anyway, it reads... Dearest Michael, that's odd, very few people call me Michael. Dearest Michael, do you ever broadcast animal adoption notices on your podcast? I'm a big fan of animals, and I was just wondering because I'm looking to adopt a dog, maybe. Oh, that's sweet. Yours, Jessica Vance, Los Angeles, California. Thanks for that, Jessica. I appreciate it. Just send me your return address so I can send this coconut back immediately. You know, it's funny. We normally never receive animal adoption notices on this show, but we did receive one this week. 
and we like to read it for you now. We are hoping that perhaps we can match this sweet pooch with a new owner, maybe even you, Jessica. I do have to say, however, that it's a bit of a strange notice. We puzzled over it for a while, and we contemplated even reading it, but as everyone knows, there's a dog out there for everyone, and we hope that this dog finds its forever home. Okay, let me read it now. It reads, Hi, my name is Smokey. Oh, it's one of those ads written in the first person from the dog's point of view. That's cute. Okay. Hi, my name is Smokey. I am a five-year-old black-and-white collie male with blue eyes and a very sweet personality. I have lived with my current owner since I was a pup, but unfortunately I need to find a new forever home because my owner's current situation has changed. I am a very well-behaved doggy, friendly, neutered, super lovable, and 100% disease and demon-free. Can you make room in your home for a furry, happy, loving, non-traditional dog like me? I sure hope so. I'm okay living in a small space. My previous owner's space was a tiny two-bedroom house, but my owner had to leave the premises in kind of a hurry. I love long walks that don't pass churches or religious-affiliated cemeteries, and I'm a fiend for the dog run. I shouldn't be around babies, goats, or home-constructed altars, and I love to nap on a big, fat pillow. I've learned lots of tricks. I can catch, play dead, beg, shake hands, and levitate. I'm a big talker. I can bark once for please, and if you give me a snack, you'll get two barks for thank you. Recently, I've also learned to bark in what may sound like ancient Sumerian, but don't worry. It's not like a demonologist attempted to rid a malevolent spirit from my owner's house by trapping that demon in my body. I'm just a wacky, woofy doggy. My coat is long and it will need a lot of brushing. But don't even worry about fleas. The only wingless critters you'll need to worry about are the hordes of scuttling fang crabs that come to play with me during the vernal equinox. I have a few dietary requirements. Like lots of dogs in my breed, I'm really not a fan of store-bought dog food. Call me spoiled, but lately I will only eat food from animals that were slaughtered before my eyes, preferably with a knife carved from onyx. I also love it when my Din Din's entrails are wrapped in 16th century Hungarian crushed velvet silk and buried in the easternmost part of your lawn. I a picky doggy. Additionally, I should never be allowed to eat clover or sage. Ever. Eating clover or sage will make me feel like I have a grumbly tummy and that I am surging with the invincible power of the dark armies of Nizroth, so keep that stuff away from me. Seriously, if you have sage or clover in your garden, it has to be removed immediately. This cannot be stressed enough. Set your garden plots on fire, then pave over them with concrete just to be sure. If I ever eat clover or sage, all I can say is things are going to get rough! I have literally come out of my shell, and I am becoming more and more social. I am great with humans who cower before me, but cats and priests with wrong intentions just make me angry. I will cool down quickly if I am placed gently onto a throne and then carry through town on the backs of four middle-aged virgin men. I am also prone to motion sickness. Before adopting me, my new mommy and daddy should know that I have not finished growing just yet. I am a medium-sized doggy who is getting larger and larger every day and who has not yet reached his final height of nine and a half feet. I hungry. 
I almost always come when called, but if you're shouting for me and I'm being stubborn, try calling me by my nickname, Phone, leader of the foot soldiers for Hell's Army. Just be sure to never call me by my nickname three times in a row or while staring into a mirror. And definitely do not call me by that nickname while you're menstruating. Do you have the patience to raise a differently able pooch? Then I may be the one for you. Here's a question. Can't some doggies be a little special and have between their legs a birch rod to mete out punishment instead of a boring old tail? I hope I'm not sounding like one of those high-maintenance doggies. Though I need a little extra care, I'm just a regular, lovable old pup who is so not presently possessed by the spirit of the second captain of Hades' sentinels. And even if I was, that would only be because my owner's demonologist told him she could cleanse his house if he let her pour the spirits into my pretty furry body, but then never let him know what was going to happen for the rest of eternity. If you ever feel the need to be sure that I don't have any demons inside me, you just have to get some help from the demonologist who's still alive, barely. Piece of cake! I'm ready to move in today. Just come and get me from the corner of Palmer and Landvale. You'll know it because it's the only house on the block that was recently swallowed up whole by the ground below. You'll find me sitting in the middle of the sunken plot, waiting ever so patiently. Do you want me to come home with you? All you have to do is look me directly in the eye and say, Rise, Basilphone! You are welcome to my home, and I am humbled to subject myself wholly to thine rule. Hi, my name is Smokey, and I cannot wait to join your happy, happy family. Won't you give this remarkable doggy a chance? Holy shit. No, I'm not giving this remarkable doggy a chance. But if you, on the other hand, want to give this remarkable doggy a chance, just email me and I will pass your information along to the unlucky owner. Okay, I'm very, very happy to announce that this podcast has a new sponsor called Citrana, S-I-T-R-A-N-A. They make gorgeous, gorgeous leather shoes. These guys have been designing and building these leather shoes in their workshop, a small workshop based in Santiago, Chile, since 2010. And they now have a brand new showroom and store in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I recently visited the store. I'm a huge fan of shoes. The store is beautiful, as is their footwear. In fact, I'm wearing a pair right now. I promise you, these shoes are almost like works of art. Check it out. And even more exciting than that, listeners of this podcast get 10% off online if you buy shoes at citrana.com, S-I-T-R-A-N-A.com. Or even more fun, you can visit them in store and just announce out loud that you're doing it with Mike Sachs. You'll get 10% off. You won't be arrested. You will get 10% off. If you don't want to do that, go to their website, citrana.com, and type in the code Doing It, D-O-I-N-I-T and you'll still get 10% off. That's an amazing deal. Citrana carries limited stock and can also take orders to build shoes, especially for you. That's Citrana, S-I-T-R-A-N-A, at Citrana.com. I never promote anything that I don't love, and I guarantee you that you will also love these shoes. Okay, so we have a great show for you this week. We really do. Truly, truly excited I am about this interview. Vince Gilligan has the distinction of being the creator of two of the best shows in television history. That would be Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. He is a veteran TV writer who's written for another fantastic show called X-Files. You might have heard of it as well as a truly underrated 1998 movie starring Luke Wilson and Drew Barrymore called Home Fries. If you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth checking out. Vince is originally out of my home state of Virginia, born and raised close to Richmond. And beyond being brilliant, he's just a very, very decent person, which comes through in his great work. 
I've always found Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul to be very, very funny, almost like a Scorsese film. It's deep comedy tethered to character where there's always more at stake, and this is always my favorite type of comedy. I will wrestle anyone who disagrees with me about this. At least in my mind, I'm physically quite weak. But I will say it again, I do think Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul are just as much drama comedies. Vince is currently in the midst of writing the third season of Better Call Saul, and he was very, very nice to take some time away from the writer's room to speak with me. We spoke by phone. You're a Virginian, a Richmond, yeah. correct, from Farmville? Uh, from Farmville, Virginia, born in Richmond. I uh, lived a couple years in Richmond, and then, yes, uh, my formative years uh, uh, were in Farmville, Virginia, which is about 65 miles uh, west of Richmond. It's and, a beautiful uh, area. Great, great town. It is the Piedmont area of Virginia, wonderful uh, region, and I get back about once a year and visit my mom and my uncle and my dad uh, in, in, in the Richmond area, and then I always go back to Farmville, uh uh, at some point, and I just always go by myself, and I just drive around. I spend uh, five or six hours walking around the town and driving around, and uh, kind of recharges my batteries uh, every year when I do that. How far was Hollywood in your mind? I mean, what to you was it even bridgeable to get out to Hollywood? You know, I, I, I that's an excellent question that I realize I'm not sure how to answer in the sense that. I knew it was far away, certainly geographically, but but also uh, uh, figuratively speaking as well, it seemed far away. But somehow, if I'm being honest, I don't guess it seemed impossible. I mean, I knew nobody who worked in Hollywood. I, I knew I had no connections or, or, or you know or anything like that. But I I did. I was fortunate in that I, I I did know what I wanted to do from a very early age. I wanted to to work in the business. I wanted to, it was a little bit freeform at first. I, I wanted to uh, do special effects in movies. I wanted to build robots and spaceships. And of course, you, as you can imagine, this, so much of this was uh, influenced by first Star Trek and then Star Wars. Uh, and Star Wars came out when I was 10 years old in 77. And, and I just knew from, from age 8 or 9 or 10, I wanted to to do that, I wanted to tell those stories that I was seeing on television and in the movie theaters, uh, and I and I I didn't quite know what form it would take. Uh, it took a few more years to realize I wanted to to write and direct, but I guess the answer to the question is it seemed it didn't seem impossible. I, I guess through uh, because of my naivete, it, it, it just it seemed like well, you know, if someone else could do it, maybe I can too. Uh, luckily, I didn't think that hard about, gee, how in the world am I going to do this uh, when I'm old enough? It, I don't know if it's possible. Uh, I just sort of went for it. Uh, a little ignorance is not necessarily a bad thing. Willful ignorance is, is probably a terrible thing. But a little bit of innocent ignorance and naivete is, is uh, probably uh, more often than not not, not not a bad quality to possess, at least, at least uh, in the beginning. Now, you mentioned Star Wars. Were you a fan of earlier special effects, uh, Ray Harryhausen, and the stop-motion effects from the 50s and 60s? Very much so. Uh, and, and some of that stuff I, I saw prior to Star Wars. Some of it uh, I, I caught on to later. I must have seen Jason and the Argonauts uh, before Star Wars. I was probably seven or eight. And I just, just there was magic watching uh, Seeing that I just absolutely loved was uh, 
uh, Talos, the, the, the giant, the statue, there's a bronze statue uh, that comes to life because they, they break onto the, they're, they're at the base of the statue, they, they, they break into the base of the statue and there's all this gold and treasure and then suddenly this hundred foot tall bronze uh, statue comes to life and, and starts killing them and it, God, that just blew my mind as a kid. So what did Star Wars mean to you? You were ten years old, you saw this in the theater. You know, you said something that fascinated me. How how did you and all your friends know that Star Wars was going to be so huge without the internet and social media? It just seemed to be in the air. I'd get these magazines that talked about science fiction movies and Star Wars. As I say, it was just kind of in the air, and I think primarily through these magazines such as Starlog. And uh, I just knew about this thing. Months. I feel like as as memory my memory serves, it was months before. And so I was practically uh, standing in line when this thing opened. Uh, it's at least that's my memory of it, and and everyone else was too. And it it was just a phenomenon, you know. I guess if you knew how to do it, you'd be doing it with every single movie uh, and every single TV show. It just sometimes things uh, spontaneously combust, and I think that was the case with Star Wars. If you if you're in this industry long enough, you you kind of for your own emotional well-being you kind of have to let go and say my job is to do the best work i can do tell the best stories i can tell and then try to keep an emotional detachment to to whatever level i can i can uh allow for because at a certain point you 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 put it out there in the world you know you you release the the little uh you know the, the pigeon you know from your cup gently in your hands and you, you want it to fly out the window and soar into the stratosphere and sometimes it just, you know, <laughs> it just drops out of your head and splats on the pavement below instead. You, know, just, you can't tell. It's just uh, so, much of, so much of it's locking. Do you think uh, that timing pl- uh, played a part in the success of Breaking Bad? And if so, do you th- what, what did we as viewers need to see at that time? Oh, man, it, uh, timing was everything with Breaking Bad. I mean, you wouldn't even be you wouldn't even be talking to me right now if not for timing, if not for no one would have heard of me. No one would have heard of Breaking Bad if not for, I mean, we, got, we won the lottery over and over with Breaking Bad. There was so much luck involved. Uh, I can't even, I don't even know where to begin. First of all, uh, the fact that AMC, God bless them, was, was at that moment in time in, in uh, in 2007 or late 2006, was ready and willing to get into the scripted entertainment uh, business, the scripted programming business. Uh, AMC was was well known to me in 2006, 2007 as the as the as the channel that showed you know Short Circuit two over and over again, showed these 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 movies over and over again, you know, show uh, uh, Schwarzenegger films and whatnot, and. They, thank goodness for them, they decided to get into scripted programming, and and uh, they were the only uh, outfit at that time who was who was willing to give us a shot was Breaking Bad. So that was that was that's uh, one great example of timing, good timing uh, that that uh, helped us out greatly. And then the the second uh, big milestone in terms of, of 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 good fortune and good timing was uh, that that streaming video video on demand. Uh, Came along, came to its, uh, came truly into being uh, at around uh, season. Gosh, I forget exactly. Season three, I guess, or, or maybe season four of, of Breaking Bad, and, and uh, Netflix uh, uh, 
as the prime example of, of streaming video, Netflix stopped being just a company that, that mailed you DVDs and became truly what they are now, uh, started to become what they are now, a streaming company, and they took Breaking Bad and allowed people to catch up to it, to, to in other words, catch up to a very uh, hyper-serialized show that... that uh, no one could have caught up to uh, under the old model, the old paradigm of, of, of uh, you know, repeats available once or twice a year on, on, on broadcast television. Suddenly, people can catch up. They don't have to buy a DVD box set. They can, they can catch up on their, on, their Netflix, on their Netflix feed, and that was great good timing uh, that, that kept us on the air past... I guess season three or so, season four, and and allowed not just kept us on the air, not just kept us in production, but allowed people to catch up with us, people who otherwise would have never seen the show, and and allowed it to turn into to what it ultimately became. And those two great moments of good fortune were nothing that I planned for. I just I just we just you know, we all got caught up in the in the in the in the, in the wave, so to speak, and we were. We were just lucky. I'd love to say, oh, yeah, now we planned all that. But it was, uh, like I say, you either have luck or you don't. I know, but, I mean, at the same time, the show is, in my opinion, the best show ever. And the quality of the writing, the production, the music, the acting was so top-notch that that certainly, you know, you had a bit of luck. But... You, it can only take you so far, and I think that the the, the um, quality of the show uh, I had never seen before. Well, well, thank you, Mike. We, I mean, we we as we always do. We we we, uh, and as everyone does, not just us. You 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 put your best foot forward, and you and you make the best show you can make. Or if you're making a movie, you make the best movie you can make. So on and so forth. It's that's the real joy of of getting to do this job is to is to do the best work you can do. And then the real heartbreak of the job is sometimes you've very often, in fact, you've done the best work you can do, but then it it just doesn't connect with an audience for for whatever reason, bad timing or whatnot. But that's the eternal pl- pleasure and the eternal pain of the job. But but you know everyone's doing that. Everybody's putting their best foot forward, and then the luck takes takes a hand, or else or else it doesn't. Uh, you know, it, it, in other words, I guess what I'm saying is Breaking Bad could have been as good as it as it as it is. As I'm proud to say that it, that it is. But if we had come out six months earlier, or a year earlier, or, or maybe six months later, a year later, I, I don't know that we'd be talking right now. I don't know. In other words, it's 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 as I was saying earlier, it's it's not all about quality. It's 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 about what is is interesting uh, at that particular moment in time. What what catches an audience's interest, and this becomes more and more important as time goes on because we all have less bandwidth than we've ever had before. Where there is more product uh, coming out of the pipeline, coming out of the various pipelines. It used to be there was one pipeline. I do think about this a lot, and I, I wonder if it is a good thing for those who are coming up to have too much choice. You know, I think there's something to be said for being forced to watch three channels and, and discovering, um, you know, Ray uh, Harryhausen by accident yeah. on Channel 20 or Channel 50. But I do wonder what it's going to be like for my daughter, who's growing up now, and for future writers, to, for everything to be so fragmented. Yeah, I, that's a, another excellent question that I spend a lot of time pondering. But I guess at the end of the day, it is what it is. And, and we, 
you know, we 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 make use of what we have, and and we 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 are formed by the experiences that we that we uh, that we live. And and uh, I remember, uh, as it relates to this subject, I remember my dad telling me about movies, uh, famous movies. He pitched to me Bad Day at Black Rock. Uh, he told me the whole story before I ever saw the movie. Uh, Kind of unfortunately, he pitched to me the whole story for Psycho before I ever got a chance to see it, <laughs> right. and and so I never got the great reveal of oh my God, it's really uh, it's really Norman Bates, it's not his mom, uh, but uh, and I I remember uh, later on in life thinking God, my dad shouldn't have ruined it for me, but I realize now that we're talking about it, he was telling me these stories at a time before VCRs mm-hmm. when. If you were lucky, they'd play Psycho and the Late Late Movie on Channel 6, uh, you know, at uh, 1 in the morning on, on Saturday night, uh, a year from now, if you were lucky. And, and you, you know, if you missed it, you missed it. So he was telling me stories of movies that uh, there was no uh, immediate way of seeing. Uh, for me, I'd be lucky if I caught him in a revival house uh, years later. And God, how it's changed since then! It it it, it went from that to you could go down to the blockbuster and rent uh, a VCR tape copy of Psycho. And now it's 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 come to the point that that we'll be in our writers' room and we'll say, Hey, you remember the scene in, in Psycho? You remember the the shot looking up into the shower head? How does the water not hit the the lens? Hey, pull that up, would you, Ariel? We'll say to Ariel, our, our our writer's assistant, you know, and and she is already on it before we even ask her because she's that good. And suddenly we're all standing in a semicircle around her laptop watching. You know the the water come out of the shower head in psycho it's it's instant gratification and it's it's amazing how we as human beings get used to it and and we get used to it quick because now I have to remember back to what it was like in the old days before vcrs and 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 it it's i I don't think it's you know and and it, it's it's too big a thing to even I mean, certainly we should question everything, but as to whether it's a good thing, a bad thing, it's, it, it just is what it is. It's this amazing tool, and there are good things about it and bad things. But, but by and large, being able to access things that can inspire you, uh, can make you a better human being instantly, uh, that's, that's, a, that's an amazing invention. But the other side of the, of the coin is you can instantly access things that uh, don't make you so inspired, don't make you so happy. You, 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 have to, you have to wallow through a lot of shit, you know, <laughs> a lot of junk uh, with that ability. So it's just uh, putting it to good use is the, is the key, which is easier said than done, I guess. Well, you mentioned before the streaming aspect was part of the success, you feel, of Breaking Bad. Do you write differently with that in mind? Can you make the plots denser? Can you make characters' backgrounds denser in that you know people will be rewatching this in order? Oh, yeah. It, it's, that's, that's a godsend, I'll tell you. Uh, when I started off in TV, uh, I, I, my first... My first television job was the X Files, which is which is the second best job I will ever have. I have to give, I have to give the the nod to uh, to Breaking Bad slash Better Call Saul. I have to give that that's internally going to be the best job ever. But a close second was the X Files. It was a wonderful, wonderful job I had for seven years, and I, I I'm I will be grateful to the day I I die that I got it, and Chris Carter gave me that job. I learned so much about TV 
working on the X-Files. And back when I got that job, it was conventional wisdom in TV. You did not tell serialized stories. Uh, TV, it was a rare TV show uh, at that point in the early 90s that was that was serialized, that, that, that picked up one week where it left off the week before. Because the network executives, the guys, uh, the men and women buying these shows would say, no, you know, those don't sell. And they weren't completely wrong. The conventional wisdom was based on a, on a truth that uh, apparently, as I recall, I remember the the uh, the, the, the conventional wisdom was, uh, I guess, derived from from market studies and whatnot. People who identified themselves as fans, true fans of a TV show, by and large, wind up seeing one quarter of the episodes of that given show. In other words, if you said, man, I love Hill Street Blues, that's a great show, or, or NYPD Blue, or whatever, once they did the research on you, they figured out, you know, you're seeing one out of four episodes of that show. And that's just that was just because of, you know, the, the vagaries of being home at, you know, 9 p.m. on a Tuesday or whatever. If, if you weren't home to see the thing, then you had to program the VCR and you had to have a fresh tape to put in it. And a lot of people, you know, just too much trouble. So, you know, if Family X-Files saw maybe 50 out of the 200 episodes uh, going by that math. And obviously, streaming has changed all of that. Now people consume uh, every Pringle in the can, so to speak. They, 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 they see every episode of, of Game of Thrones. They see every episode of Mad Men and so on and so forth because of streaming. But back in the day when you couldn't do that, uh, it made sense that uh, the, argument against, uh, the, the, the argument against serialized dramas made sense because, you know, if you're going to see one in four episodes, you're not going to be able to, to, to maintain the thread of the story. But now that we have this, uh, this almost magic ability for people to catch up and see every episode, you can be hyper-serialized. And you can, and indeed, uh, we, we, we plant the most minute details uh, in Better Call Saul, and, and we did also in Breaking Bad, to reward the people who are watching the show closely. And it used to be back in the day as well, the, you know, the network executives would give you the note about, gee, this thing that you're reminding the audience of, it happened two episodes back, and, and we're going to need a little flashback, or we're going to need some dialogue where, where the guy says, hey, Bill, remember that thing that happened where, uh, you know, you said this and thus and so? I'm sure there are executives still giving that note, but it is not as necessary as it used to be, and for that I'm grateful because it, it led to a lot of very clunky exposition and, and a lot of clunky flashbacks that, that really, uh, it's a sad thing that they were ever necessary, and it's a wonderful thing that, that, that they may no longer be necessary. But that must put more pressure on you as a writer when you break down a story or when you evolve a character. The nuances and the details must extend much further than they would have otherwise. Yeah, you got to be. You have to be rigorous, and you have to you have to uh, uh, exhibit a fair amount of self discipline. And and I think that's great. I mean, that's the kind of thing I I, I love doing. Uh, all of the writers on 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 both shows uh, took that as a challenge. On on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, uh, we took that as a challenge. Uh, as indeed, as I recall, in the X Files, we also we 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 endeavored to to keep things as as contiguous and and uh, what's the word to keep things as, as consistent as possible. We, we took that to the nth degree on Breaking Bad, and, and we continue to with, with Better Call Saul, and it's, 
it's it's fun. It's a fun challenge. It's we don't want to cheat. Uh, there were times uh, where we perhaps could get away with cheating, although those opportunities uh, are, are, are fewer and fewer as, as the years go by because of streaming uh, video. But uh, we we never had the, the uh, impetus or the inclination to cheat in the first place. I, I, I want to build, if I'm allowed to, and thank goodness AMC and Sony allowed us to, but if I'm allowed to build a world, so to speak, uh, if I'm allowed to... to to tell the story of, of the Albuquerque of, of Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad and, and create as from as whole a cloth as possible this world uh, in which Walter White and, 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 and Jimmy McGill and all these other characters live and breathe. I, I want them to feel like they're living and breathing, and, and to that end, consistency is important. You don't want to change the rules midstream. You don't want to, you know, change the layout of the, of the city, so to speak, and... Uh, I realize I'm saying so to speak way too much. This should be like a drinking game, this podcast. Every, every time I say so to speak, someone should take a shot of tequila. I'll try to, I'll try to, I'll try to uh, keep everybody from getting too drunk here going forward. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, I've never really had the inclination to cheat. None of us have. It's, it's, it's a challenge and a, and a, and a, and an enjoyable one to keep things as consistent as possible. Well, that's an interesting point. It's almost, when you say create a world, you're creating a world much like you would Middle Earth or Westeros. This is a fictional world that you have to create. And just because it's based on real life doesn't mean it would be that much easier. Well, uh, we we do have a leg up having uh, the real city of Albuquerque to, to base things on. Uh, Westeros is a lot. Uh, there's a lot more invention there, and and uh, all credit to Dan and David for uh, doing such a wonderful job, and and George Martin. Uh, you spend a lot of time daydreaming in this case about an Albuquerque that that is based on a real geographical place, but that is in a lot of ways an overlay that exists as a sort of a phantom world over top of the real place. So it's easy to picture. It must, must be easier for me to sit there and picture uh, a sequence uh, that Walter White's going to live in than, than it is for the guys uh, on Game of Thrones picturing Westeros. you gotta, you got to really have a picture of that place in your head uh, first, and that, that's, a, that's, that's heavier lifting. Uh, and when you do this job long enough, and I, I remember this from the X-Files as well, it really does, if you allow it to, and if you put the time in and the effort in, it really does start to come alive for you. I remember back in the X-Files in the, in the 90s, uh, I would spend so much time thinking about Mulder and Scully that I, would, I could picture Mulder's apartment, I could travel through it in my mind, I could picture their office in the basement of the, the FBI headquarters, I could... Uh, and first and foremost, I could hear them talk in my head. And the best experience is writing for the X-Files. Once you have that structure, that plotted out uh, skeleton of the story, which is the most important part of writing, I think, and, and the hardest and the least fun. But once you have the outline, the plot for the episode, and then you begin to flesh it out on the page, on the typewriter or the, or the computer, there would be times I'd be in my office and I would hear Mulder and Scully talk in my head, and I could hear their voices, and I was just, I was, I was transcribing. Uh, I was taking dictation more than I was writing, or, or so it felt. And that's a, that's a tough place to get to, and it takes, it takes a lot of man hours. It takes a lot of years, in fact. But it's a, it's a, 
it's, it's a great place to be once you get there. It, it, it makes you feel like, wow, my job just got a whole lot easier. But is that a good place to be with a character like Walter White, to have him in your head? Not so much. Not so much. Uh, I mean, I'm, I, I would, wouldn't trade my Breaking Bad experience for anything, but I, I do have to say, as sad as I was when it ended, it was a bit of a relief uh, as well. Uh, that I felt because I can remember I think I might have told this story before but it's maybe worth retelling I remember driving home uh, at night uh, from uh, our, our writer's room in Burbank and we, we left pretty late some nights and it'd be 10, 11 uh, at night it'd be midnight or whatnot. I'd be driving along through Burbank which is, is not, a, not a bad neighborhood or anything it's a nice area actually but uh, I'd be pulled up at a stoplight and a car would pull up alongside me and I'd I'd get this sudden, I'd have this sudden fear, you know, is that guy next to me going to roll down his window and shoot me? <laughs> I'm a victim of a drive-by. Just crazy thoughts that came out of nowhere. And uh, in hindsight, I realized it, it, they came from this fictional world I was spending 10, 12, 14 hours a day in, in, in my mind's eye. I, I was, in other words, uh, I was. You, you have to put yourself in the head of the character you're writing, uh, and I was. I was wearing uh, Walter White like a like a second skin. I was seeing through his eyes. You have to to write to write his story, and if you if you spend enough time in Walter White's head, you, you see the world even when you're not actively, uh, you know, storytelling. When you're not actively writing, you start to see the world through his eyes, and, and that was probably a point where, where things were getting really serious, and Gus Fring or somebody or another was, was, uh, was out to get him, and, and suddenly I'm feeling those kind of feelings in my, in my real life and getting a little paranoid. I don't want to over-dramatize it or oversell it, but there were, there were moments where it was sort of uncomfortable or where I thought to myself, I'm kind of looking forward to this being over because this is a heavy... I think I think uh, Brian Cranston almost uh, I think he worded it like sort of a heavy overcoat that you have to wear when you're playing the character. But but that's an actor's point of view. Uh, from a writer's point of view, it's it's somewhat similar. It's it's there's a real interesting overlap there between writer and actor where you you get these characters in your head and and it's good to let them go at a certain point. You know, what's interesting is how strong a connection people felt to Walter White, how much, including myself, sympathized with this guy who was a, basically a sociopath. But to yeah. get to that level, I, I would think that you would have to see in his, from his point of view. And to do that, you have to dig deep within yourself as a writer. Yeah, it, it's true. Um, it was never that hard to see through his eyes. It was. It, it didn't always remain easy to to sympathize with him, or certainly to to quote unquote like him. That that actually got harder for me over the years. And it, I would have interesting conversations with Brian Cranston. Um, there is an interesting difference between writer and actor, I think. And in one sense, there was a certain point where I stopped liking Walter White. Uh, I didn't necessarily hate him. But in the early days of the show, of the series, I was actively rooting for Walt, and I felt for him, and I liked him, and I wanted to see him succeed. And those feelings of affection, for lack of a better word, started to go by the wayside for me as the, as the seasons progressed. And 
around about the beginning of the fifth season, and maybe a little before that, I, I started to actively uh, dislike is maybe too strong a word, but I I I I, I liked. Walter White much, much less. And I felt more and more for for his family and for Jesse Pinkman, uh, for all the people uh, who suffered for his really monstrous uh, ego and, and, and sociopathy. Uh, and he really, you know, we, 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 we accomplished what we set out to accomplish We from the get-go. I always use that kind of time-worn expression now. I want to take Mr. Chips and turn him into Scarface. And, and damned if we didn't, but along the way, I became less uh, less uh, enamored of, of of him, and Brian uh, did not. Brian, I realized uh, as when we'd have these conversations, I'd say to Brian, "Well, you know, Walt is a real asshole at this point." And Brian would look at me kind of funny. He'd look startled, and and he'd almost look a little bit hurt. And I realized in in, in hindsight, why have, you know what is wrong with me? Why am I saying to the to to the star of, of my show? that the character he's playing is an asshole. Why does he need to hear that? And it was really a dumb thing to say because, you know, as, as, as much as you as a writer see through the eyes of the character, and that was what I was trying to express a little earlier, there's nothing, I say this a little, little bit in the abstract because I'm not an actor, but I suspect there's nothing like actually portraying the character. And... Because there's a certain self-identification you, you can't help but do. There's a certain overlap on the Venn diagram between the character and between you, the actor. And it was as if I was insulting Brian, and I also realized I, I can't, if I start telling him his character is no good and is a piece of crap and, and, and you know, should not be rooted for, is that going to affect his uh, his portrayal of the character in a, in a, in a, in a bad way, in a, in a way that's less than conducive to, to the brilliant work he's been doing thus far uh, so that was, I don't know why I was saying those things I, I was talking at the moment I was talking uh, not to Brian uh, the actor but Brian the producer I guess when I would say these things but uh, in hindsight I wouldn't do that again on another show well, what was it about the Walter White character in, in around season 4 that you started to turn away from was it anything in particular <laughs> Uh, I don't know that it was any one scene. It was the weight of, of scenes. It was the weight of behavior, the weight of, 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 of arrogance and, and ego and overweening pride and, and uh, sociopathic uh, uh, disinterest uh, in, in, in the feelings of other people. And, and more than anything else, the, the, the bullshit the, uh, that he... I'm talking about it like he's a real person. By the way... <laughs> Walter White, God bless him. He, you know, he's uh, he's he's made my life very comfortable financially. You know, but but if he were a real person, it's a, you know, I'd, I'd cross the street to avoid him. He's he's it, the, the worst thing of all, I think, was the lying. Yeah. He was the world's greatest liar. The character of Walter White was the world's greatest liar, and the greatest lies he he committed were on himself. He he was. Uh, uh, a rationalizer par excellence. He, he could tell himself any kind of self-serving lie and believe it. And the biggest lie of all, consistently for six years straight, was I'm doing this for for my family. And we 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 shine the light on that lie in in episode four of the series with uh, with uh, what uh, 58 episodes to go. We shine the light way back in episode four that he wasn't doing it for his family, which was the smartest thing we ever did. 
story construction-wise, by the way. But in episode four of the series, way back in season one, we offered a, a, in very, very deus ex machina fashion, we, 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 we offered him uh, salvation. His rich uh, friend, or friends, uh, Gretchen and Elliot, find out through the through the mechanism of, of Schuyler telling them. They find out he's been diagnosed with lung cancer, Walt has, and then they say, Walt, we're going to pay for your cancer treatment. We're going to get you the best oncologist in America. We're going to, no, no expenses uh, spared. And also, you've got a job for life with us, and we'll figure out what that job is. And it was salvation. And he turned it down to sell meth. Yeah. And as as uh, the series progressed, we we realized that he had <laughs> some very major issues uh, with Gretchen and Elliot that that stemmed from uh, hurt pride and a feeling of uh, a feeling of uh, abuse or a feeling that he had been abused by them. If you watch the show very closely, though, uh, we never really indicate that those feelings were earned or deserved. We never indicate that Gretchen and Elliot are bad guys. Walt certainly thinks they are. Uh, they, he thinks he has been abused and, and, and ripped off by them. Uh, but we never, and purposely so, we never give any evidence that, that Walt is correct in that assessment. But that's, to, to me, this guy, and by the way, I'm, I'm sitting here ragging on this guy, <laughs> ragging on Walter White. Uh, I, I need to add at this point, he never was anything less than fascinating to me as a writer. I may have lost sympathy for him. I may have lost uh I may have lost that ability to to like him. Uh but I never uh lost uh my fascination for him and then that uh that that never wavered, that never went away. He was endlessly fascinating. He was an endless uh rich uh gold mine, a rich seam of gold uh in, in a gold mine uh, that that just never ran out. Uh we we kind of felt like we were running out of of his story, but we were never running out of interest uh, for him. Uh, the writers and, and myself never 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 were anything less than fascinated. Well, that's a very interesting point you make about his previous partners. At the time when I was watching, I thought they must have done something bad. But when you look back, they were actually being real mensches by by reaching yeah. out and offering yeah. him a, a literal lifeline for this guy. That's, and, and in that early episode, we didn't really know that much about them. Uh, we, the writers, didn't didn't know as much as we as we knew later. But that was that was kind of that was a lot of the fun we had with Breaking Bad was was playing with with conventions and expectations. And one convention of television, not just television, but but any kind of storytelling, going back to the to the Greeks, I suppose. You know, there's certain rules to storytelling, and one of them. Is that when you watch, when you are invested in the in the protagonist of, of a story, you you start to see things through their eyes, and you you know, in other words, if the good guy is 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 walking down the street, if the if the hero of your of your story is walking down the street, and 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 you've invested in this guy and you like him, and suddenly he he uh, he sees this guy minding his own business and he punches him in the face. Even if it startles you, you you think to yourself, "Well, that guy must have had it coming," because my hero wouldn't do that if there wasn't a good reason for it. And and we liked playing with those kind of expectations and and even subverting them when we when we had a chance. So in other words, Gretchen and Elliot come along, and they're this rich couple. 
uh, and they seem really happy. And and <laughs> instantly, as viewers, we think to ourselves, "Oh, they must be assholes," <laughs> because they seem too happy and well off to uh, for me to to me to be able to invest in them. And and also, my guy Walt doesn't like them. Sure, he smiles at him when he first meets him, but but we we get this feeling there's some hidden vibe underneath. And then as the series progresses, he you know he's actively uh, nasty to to Gretchen at a certain point. And then at the in the final episode, he 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 terrorizes them. He 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 sneaks into their own house and 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 basically uh, bends them to his will. And and as the audience, you're. You're rooting for for him in that moment, and you're thinking, "Yeah, hell yeah, stick it to him." And in a, a strange way, that's how I was feeling uh, when I was writing that scene and and directing it. I thought, "Yeah, yay, Walt," and he's not, he's not being heroic at all. He's 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 accomplishing something that we thought was practically unaccomplishable, if that's a word, that was undoable, which is getting the money to his family and having them accept it. And, and for his brilliance, he is to be applauded for his thinking outside the box uh, brilliance uh, as, a, as a character, as a, as, a, as a doer, as someone who accomplishes things. But the way he does it is, is terrible if you, if you stop to consider the humanity and the uh, basic uh, goodness uh, of, of Gretchen and Elliot, because we've never told you otherwise. We've never said to you, these guys really do suck ass. These guys are, Gretchen and Elliot are bad. They're bad because they're rich. You know, we, we never say they're bad because they're rich. We, we never say they're bad just because Walter White thinks they're bad. We, we let you do the math or not do the math, and it's, and it's, uh, it's fun to, it's fun to, to do that, we we love to, as I say, subverting ex- expectations. And if people do watch the series and they say, "I don't care what the creator of the show says," I, I think Gretchen and Elliot are assholes, and I'm with Walt. I'm on Team Walt. So be it. Uh, if we ever meet in a bar or whatever, and you you know you argue with me and say, "I I think you're barking up the wrong tree," Walt had a lot uh, arrayed against him, and he 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 deserved to 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 you know. So he stuck it to a few people along the way. I don't care. I'm still on Team. Walt, I wouldn't argue with you. I love it. I love I love hearing those things. I just listen and smile. I, I hear that from my mom, of all people. I hear that from my girlfriend. They, my girlfriend says, uh, I was on Team Walt all the way to the bitter end. And I, I don't argue with her because I just think it's fascinating sociologically uh, that this, this character, uh, he, he, I don't know, he gets your hooks in you as a viewer. And then he got his hooks into me as a as a writer, and all of all of us writers. He got he got his hooks into us, so to speak. And and you know, however you see him at the end of it, I'm just I'm just happy if you watch the whole thing. That's that's all I really care about. Well, that's what made it so effective for me. This character, until Skyler said to him, "Enough, enough, Walt. No more lying." That was I found that a very effective line because up until that point, I was rooting for him, even if he was a sociopath. But it was right. Skyler who came out and just said, enough already. No more lying to me, no more lying to our son, no more lying to yourself. Which yeah. is sort of surprised me when a lot of viewers came down against Skyler, the character. Yeah, that's, that's one of those unknowables as well. Or maybe it is knowable. I don't know. It's, it's, it, uh, that's, that was one of my few sadnesses as, as related to uh, Breaking Bad is, is, that, is that Anna Gunn, who is a very 
wonderful human being and one of the smartest uh, actors I've ever worked with and, and just a, a sweet person and a sensitive person. One of my great sadnesses is that she really, she kind of suffered uh, personally because of that. There, there, was, there were a lot of people, you know, out there in the world who were tough on her and they weren't just tough on the character. Sometimes it boiled over into... You know, if, this is why, by the way, you know, reading, you know, getting on, getting in chat rooms and reading, you know, uh, people's reactions to stuff. Uh, that that's you do that at your own risk. That's <laughs> you know? But uh, it's dangerous. That it's because uh, it's uh, it's like sometimes it's like picking up a rock and seeing what's crawling around underneath. You know, but but uh, you know, there's a lot of nastiness uh, brewing. Uh, during those last three or four seasons of, of the show, and a lot of it was aimed at her, and a lot of it was not, you know, it was not like, oh, I hate Skyler. Sometimes it was, oh, I hate that Anna Gunn. And I'm thinking, where in the hell is that coming from? And I think it's complicated. Uh, it's There's a lot of moving parts there, and some of it is just plain misogyny. Yeah. But then again, I, I, to, if I'm being fair, a lot of, a lot of the people who hated Skyler the most that I have personally run into and interacted with along the way were women. So it's not that's that's not the, the catch-all answer that, that that covers all bases. Misogyny because there's plenty of women just didn't like the character either. But again, I, you know, if 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 you if you uh, you know if you're Larry Hagman playing J.R. Ewing, the, the man all of America loved to hate back in the late seventies on Dallas, you know that that's. That's one thing, you know. I, I, you know, if you're if you're the guy, if you're J.R. Ewing, you're like, hey, people hate me. That's great. But people weren't saying back then, I hate Larry Hagman. You know, that's that's where exactly. things right. got things got weird with with uh, yeah. with, with with Anna, uh, and she's just I don't know. I wish people had known her personally, uh, who were the haters, so to speak, because there uh, I said it again, so to speak. But uh, the haters, uh, you know, would been nice if, if people had realized, you know, this is just a this is just a wonderful actor who uh, is just playing a part, and and she's getting all this hate that she, that she does not deserve, that should not be being heaped on her. It was it was a weird time. It was kind of a weird thing. But uh, so much of it, I think, came from uh, a more innocent place as well, which is, you know, if you're going to invest in Walter White, you're you're not necessarily going to going to be on board with people trying to stop him from doing his thing and and succeeding in the in the meth business. And and his wife was rightly, I think, trying to trying to curtail his illegal activities. So uh, you know. uh, Maybe she got some hate because of that as well. She was acting the school marm in their eyes that she was trying to stop the fun. I guess, and, and it's a funny thing. And again, I, I, I try not to judge. I think it's endlessly fascinating. I, I'm always fascinated to, to discuss it and talk about it. I try not to judge it. But if you stop and ask yourself, you know, if, if you say, oh, I really hated that Skylar White. She was always a wet blanket. She's always raining on Walt's parade. If if Walt were a real person instead of a fictional character, and he was he was your your husband or your you know whatever, if, or your brother-in-law or whatever, you'd be doing everything you could to to to, to make him see the light, to to stop him from doing these things. I mean, she was she was the hero, not Walt. She was. Trying
trying to keep her family together. He was giving lip service constantly to the family, the family, the family is all. It's the most important thing. I do what I do for my family. He was whittling away at his family in all 62 episodes. He was actively in the midst of rationalizing behavior, uh, you know, rationalizing behavior, quote-unquote, you know, designed to, to help his family. He was actually hurting it with every step along, every step of the way, and she was trying to keep the family together and it's it's the irony of all ironies that that uh that uh, a lot of a lot of viewers a lot of good viewers a lot of good people uh decent people were, were disliking her and loving him uh it's, it's it's a very fascinating irony which again goes back to the quality of the writing there's a lot of people out there who would love to write for television and you once gave a great piece of advice that it was said that you read said Fields book and you learn from it but at a certain point you just have to say I have a particular idea and it kind of breaks the rules but I have to go for it anyway absolutely but you hear that a lot you hear I mean Sid Fields book uh, on on screenwriting I think is the name of it don't quote me on that it's been a long time since I read it but uh, I think that's the title he wrote several books and, and that was I think the one if I'm got the title correct that's the one that meant the most to me that I read a couple of times and I got to meet him before he passed away, which was wonderful. And I got to say to him, your book really meant a lot to me, and it really taught me the three-act structure of a, of a motion picture screenplay, and thank you for that. I was glad to be able to say that to him. Uh, and, yes, I mean, there is the, the old saying of, you first you have to learn the rules before you can discard them. And I, I really believe in that. I, I think everyone sort of knows that, that expression, you know, learn the rules and then discard them. But I take it a step further. You don't necessarily have to discard the rules. There's a lot of room within the format, within the framework. Uh, there's a lot of room to maneuver. There's a lot of room to tell fresh and interesting stories. So I, I would offer the thought sometimes, yeah, throw the baby out with the bathwater or break the rules or whatnot. But we live in a time where, you know, you see it in every every car commercial, you know, you break the rules. Break the mold, live by your own rules, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like, great, that's fine, but don't just give lip service to learning them in the first place. Uh, if you're a writer, start with a three-act structure. Why not? It's, there's, it's, it was created over thousands of years, you know, through, through you know, uh, cavemen telling stories by a campfire to, uh, you know, Greek uh, theater to uh, Shakespeare to, you know, so on and so forth to television and movies. Learn that 3X structure pretty well because it, there's some natural human rhythm to it. There's some reason it exists the way it does. Having said that, I mean, I'm on a, on a TV show that does a 5X structure, a teaser plus four, but I mean, abide by some sort of structure. Because every painting needs a frame around it. Every every artwork needs some kind of framing mechanism and, and some set of limits, even self-imposed limits, to, to be abided by. Uh, that Sometimes it's a frame that makes the art. So I won't say it again, so to speak. Uh, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it is the frame that makes the art. So learn the rules and then, you know, stick with them. Uh, unless you got a darn good reason for, for, for breaking them. Well, that would be my advice. I mean, yeah. even, even bop musicians like Charlie Parker knew the scales and practiced those scales for years and years before he jumped off and just exploded. Oh, yeah. You can't. 
music's a good analogy, and I, I say this as someone who is is very ignorant of of musical structure. I, I that's something that's one of my lifelong regrets is I never learned to play an instrument because I music is fascinating and I love listening to it. I wish I knew how to make it. I I, I think I would get such pleasure from doing that. But but even I know uh, a rank amateur as far as as musical structure goes. Even I know that you can't put any random note after the note before it. There's got to be a rhyme and a reason to it. You, there has to be a, a rhythm to it. There has to be, and here's where I fall short of knowing my terminology, but if you just randomly put notes one right after the other, that's not music, that's noise. And it's, there's a similar uh, analogy to, uh, you know, the analogy holds with, with, with storytelling. You can't just have a, you know, okay, you know, the boy kisses a girl and then a meteorite strikes and then, you know, killer whales sprout wings. And, you know, you can you can have a computer write a screenplay and, and just have random shit happening all the live long day, but that's not going to be satisfying to, to uh, the person to whom the story is being told, just as it wouldn't be satisfying to put random note upon note. Uh, you know, that wouldn't be a, a good listening experience to to a music lover. It's there's that's the framework I'm talking about in a sense. There's there are certain rules that exist because humans as receivers of music and of storytelling have certain you know, they have certain wants and desires uh, when when they get a story told to them, or when they listen to a song. There's, there's certain certain things that we 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 kind of need, and and that's you're not, you're not being unimaginative or uncreative to to abide to a certain extent by that by that longstanding structure. That's really interesting. I've always thought of the the plots for Breaking Bad as almost being melodic, like listening to a good. Elton John song where it just hits the pleasure center of your brain. I wonder if, if that same part of your brain is is affected by both a good plot, a good writing, as well as a good melody. I don't know. I'd, uh, <laughs> I love hearing that, though. <laughs> I don't know. I just, uh, you know, I, I can, all I can tell you for sure is the way we approached it every week was there are certain, there are certain truths to, to, to drama and to storytelling, and we we need to abide within the general framework of, of, of how a story is delineated. But but within that framework, let's surprise the audience as often as we can. Let's 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 keep them guessing. Let's let's make it hard for them to to determine what's going to happen next. And uh, that that always held us in good stead. Well, I know a tremendous amount of time goes into that, and I know that you are due back on the in the writing room to start breaking down a new season of uh, Better Call Saul. So I'll let you get back to that. But I just want to say how much your work means to me. Oh, thank you, Mike. Right back at you. That's it for the 424th episode of Doing It with Mike Sachs. Here are some highlights from the upcoming podcast. Actually, just one. I will announce my all-time favorite game show catchphrase, which is, I'd like to buy a vowel and a prosthetic leg, please. I appreciate you joining us. I really do. I look forward to seeing you all next week, especially you, that one in high school math class, daydreaming that you're out of high school math class and in a writer's room. 
I feel your pain. A few shout-outs. The great, great Vince Gilligan for sitting down and talking with me. Thank you, Vince. I really appreciate it. Tyler Wall, Brian Huddell, Andrea Salenzi, Avery Edison, and Ben Hating for donating to our Patreon page. If you'd like to donate to our Patreon page, I'd very much appreciate it. You give enough money, and I will show up at your workplace without wearing a shirt. Bob Powers for co-writing the Smokey piece. You can reach Bob at girlsarepretty.com as well as on Twitter. His handle is at BobPowers1. That's the numeral one. I suggest that you follow him as he's an amazing writer. Rob Schulte for once again producing, editing, wrangling everything. You can reach Rob at robkschulte.com, S-C-H-U-L-T-E.com. He's a great podcast, GFY with Max and Rob. Check it out. You can reach me at MikeSacks.com or at DoingItWithMikeSacks.com. Until next time, I do think you know what to do. Keep your feet on the ground and keep doing it. You have just heard Red Nichols and his five pennies. This is one in a series of unusual entertainments brought to you by the Brunswick Bulky Colander Company of Chicago. Each week... Great artists, wonderful orchestras are featured in Brunswick Brevity. Every artist whom you hear on these programs, you can enjoy over and over again on Brunswick Electrical Records.